0: Thank you very much, Will, and um, apologies that I'm clearly going to fail to live up to that introduction, Um, but it is a great joy for me to be with you all here today. And um, if you have a Bible on you, uh, do you want to turn to Matthew chapter 4? It could be a paper Bible or your phone. Um, and uh, just before I read it, I'm going to get us all to pray. And uh, because I'm a guest, I'm going to do something that's probably not what I'm meant to do. But um, I'm afraid I'm going to get you all to stand up again. And I'm just going to um, ask that we, that we wait on the Lord for a little bit. I think there's something powerful about how God can meet us through his word. And I want to pray. Well, I'll just pray. So however you sort of wait on the Lord, receive from the Lord, close your eyes, keep them open, hold your hands up, whatever. But I want to just pray, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. As we read and then dig into your word, would you speak to us? Would you open your word to us? But would you open your word to us, not that we would go away better informed, but that you would set our our hearts on fire for you again. You would deepen our faith. You would change our lives. You would draw us deeper into relationship with you. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. And I feel like I want to ask all of you, just sort of let go of, of, of what, you've, what you've come here. I don't know what, what's in your mind, but just... Just say to the Lord, I want to hear from you. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Do grab a seat and let's turn to Matthew chapter 4. If you're a regular, I think you've been, uh, you'll not be surprised by this one. You've been working through uh, uh, John the Baptist and Jesus in the desert over the last few weeks. And it's now Matthew chapter 4, 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. (coughs) Apologies, I've had a bit of a cold recently. Lord, please help on that front. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, And angels came and attended him. It is a wonderful passage. It's full of drama and tension. It's the sort of story and scene that I think would get a Hollywood scriptwriter sitting up in their seats. I okay, can imagine them looking at us and thinking, sorry, God made man in Jesus, taking on Satan in the wilderness. A clash for the ages. This is the age of Marvel and superhero films. There is money in this somewhere. What sort of thing are we talking about? Are we going to see some miracles, signs and wonders, some pyrotechnics and special effects? Well, not exactly. It's, it's more dialogue. Okay, but, but when Jesus and Satan clash at the end and, and God defeats him, uh, earthquake, wind, fire, not so much. Just the Bible. And at that point, the, uh, the Hollywood script writer's already gone out the door and, and given up on the whole project. But the the point I want to make as I start there is that there is something of Hollywood's in this passage. There's something vast and huge as God and Satan face off in the wilderness, but then there is something that is completely different to what we expect. There is something surprising, something challenging in this passage. It's much more beautiful, much more amazing, and much harder than, than, than what we probably want or expect And and we miss that, I think, because most of us probably know this passage already. I'm guessing if you've been a Christian for any length of time, this is not the first time you've read about Jesus' temptations in the wilderness. (coughs) Um, And because of that, we know the story. We know what's coming. We're, We're expecting it to pan out as it does. And so we miss the surprise That that Jesus is taking on Satan in the wilderness. And there's none of the miracles and signs and wonders that we see later on in his ministry. In fact, that's part of the temptation, it seems, to do miracles, signs and wonders. Well, why not? Why why shouldn't he do that? There's none of the uh, casting out demons that we see later on. And instead, Jesus seems to take on Satan in, in weakness and in vulnerability. He uses only the same tools that we might use, the the Bible, which he quotes back at Satan each time. And we wonder what is going on. And I want to look at at that question, and I'm going to give various answers. They're all things that it's about, and the, the, the starting point is it's all about Jesus. This passage is all about Jesus and what he's come to do. We, we've seen him last week, I wasn't here but you were, at stepping into the, the fullness of his ministry and his call. He's always, he's always known who he was, both man and God, but, but he, he enters into that and, it, and it's revealed and affirmed in a new way at his baptism. You are my son with whom I am well pleased. But suddenly it looks very different to what we might expect it to have looked like because this story opens with the Holy Spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. I don't know about you, if if you were planning it, if you were writing the story, is that how you would have done it? (coughs) I think probably, if you're anything like me, you'd have gone down the Marvel superhero way. We think what we want is that, that Jesus is sort of revealed and affirmed as, as the divine son of God, as the Christ, as the Messiah, and then he's going to, wow, you know, be, be like all of those superheroes. He's going to sort of blitz all before him. The darkness will be sort of driven out. All the, all the enemies will be scattered, and, and he'll be the sort of conquering superhero going out before us. But instead, it looks very different. God leads him into the wilderness. God leads him into a place of vulnerability and temptation. In fact, he doesn't just lead him into the wilderness to be tempted. He then has him fast for 40 days. And so Jesus is entering into his humanity. Jesus is entering into our humanity. And it's as he enters into our weakness, our vulnerabilities, and our temptations, that we actually see the fullness of his glory and the wonders of what it is that he is doing. We too easily forget Good Friday on the way to the cross. We forget that. We forget that we follow a crucified Messiah, that it is through weakness and death before the resurrection that he redeems and saves us. And first, he has to experience and know and represent us in the, the sort of the crux and the crucible of the problem. And the problem is that we, my friends, fail. We fail when it comes to the temptation. And as we read this, we're meant to have resonating in our minds various Old Testament stories, two in particular. The first is Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The other time when there's a sort of personal temptation between Satan and someone. And in that moment, Adam and Eve fail catastrophically. They fail to trust in God. They fail to stand firm in faith and they drag all the rest of us down with them for for, for all time. And they represent and they show the weaknesses of humanity. But then also, as Jesus goes into the desert, the wilderness for 40 days, we're meant to immediately be thinking of Israel, God's people who went into the wilderness, to the desert, for 40 years. And again, they failed. They were tempted. They struggled. They didn't believe in God. They messed it up in all kinds of ways. And now Jesus succeeds where they failed. Jesus, the new Adam, as he's called later in the New Testament. Jesus, the the supreme, the perfect Israelite, the one who, who goes where Adam, where Israel failed, where we fail, but instead succeeds. And the most important and wonderful thing that is happening in the temptations in the wilderness is, if you like, all of the, the challenges and the struggles and the failures of humanity are sort of distilled and intensified and focused in on Jesus. You know, temptation is hard at the best of times. I can't remember who it was who said, I can resist everything except temptation. Oscar Wilde, thank you. Um, but... But, but that's true of us. And even when things are good, we struggle. But Jesus is in the wilderness, it's hot, it's arid, it's intense, it's a hard place at the best of times, and he's not eaten anything for 40 days. I don't know about you, but I sometimes fast, probably not as much as I should, and by the end of one day, I'm pretty grumpy. And, and I'm struggling. But Jesus has been fasting for 40 days, and then he doesn't just face the sort of run of the mill temptations. Satan himself comes and tempts him and tries to make him fall. It's like temptation on steroids, it's an intensification of the struggles and the battles that we face. And we fail, but Jesus succeeds. There's a, a beautiful um, passage in one of Paul's letters where he says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We sometimes assume that the Jesus having no sin was, was easy for him. Oh, yeah, but, you know, he was God. You know, it was easy. I mean, he understood things better. I mean, you know, I'm sure he'd have struggled if he'd faced my life. Well, no, he faced temptation far worse far more intense than you or I will ever face and that no sinness about him was hard fought and hard won and it is that at the start of his ministry and then through the rest of his life which makes the cross such good news Because if Jesus gives in in this moment, if Jesus does any of the things that the devil tempts him to do, then he can't stand and take our sins on himself. He can't bear the, the brunt of the guilt of the world on the cross because he's got to sort out his own mess. But because he is perfect, because he is no sin, he can stand in our place and we can therefore receive the righteousness of God. It's interesting, Matthew, Mark and Luke all... Uh, have this story in them but in Mark we we don't get the details of the temptations just that Jesus passed them with flying colors and I think there's something in that and when we read this we we so often go to this as a sort of worked example for how we can resist temptation we'll we'll get there but more importantly than that is what we see here is, is Jesus winning on our behalf and so when you look at this remember your failures Remember that you can't stand in the temptation and don't feel condemned, feel freed and excited and marveling at the grace and forgiveness of God because this is where you see the answer and the solution to the fact that you and I are no good, but he has come through. So so the first thing that we see here is that it's all about Jesus. The answer to the problems of the world is all about Jesus. And it's more beautiful than a marvel superhero who will go and sort out the problems of the world but leave you still as messed up as you were when you came in. Jesus comes to redeem us so that we can be part of God's glorious Easter vision for all of eternity. It's all about Jesus. But then let's look at these temptations that he faces, and at the heart of all of the temptations is putting ourselves, or in his case, doing things his way, putting ourselves at the center. It's all about me, the devil wants you to think, and the answer is it's not all about me. It's not all about you. It's about Jesus, as we've just seen. It's it's about God, as we'll come to. But each one of these temptations has a sort of thread running through it, that the the devil is trying to deflect Jesus' gaze away from the Father. He's trying to deflect Jesus away from the obedience and the surrender to which he and all of us are called to. And, And actually, following God, it... I think one of the biggest challenges is that it never quite looks like we want it to look like. I, I don't know about you, but, but I, I, I love the last story. I love the story about how Jesus, you know, the heavens open, the Father affirms, and the Spirit comes down. And obviously not in quite the same way as Jesus, because I'm not the the unique divine son of God, but I am a child of God, we are sons and daughters of God, and I've known those moments when I've encountered the presence of God, and I love being there, I love being on the mountaintop. And I think as Christians today, we always want to stay there. We want it to be Sunday evening all the time. We want it to be easy all the time. Sometimes we even think that that's what God has promised. We we come across all those beautiful promises that appear on our Instagram feeds, you know. Jesus said, "I've come that they might have life and have it to the full." And we forget about the wilderness. We forget that he called on us to take up our cross and follow him. We never put in this world you will have trouble, John 16:33 in our list of the promises of God. But actually, Jesus models for us that to be a follower of Jesus, to be a follower of God, is to go into the wilderness. To face the struggle, to face the challenges. And in in each temptation that the devil then hits him with, he's he's encouraged to to turn away from God's way and, and take control to some degree himself. They're very subtle temptations, more subtle than we realize, because in each of the things that the devil tells him to do, there's something that's fine. You see it most dramatically in the first one, in which he's shown some stones, and the devil says, turn these stones into bread. I sometimes wonder, I mean, he's not been eating for 40 days, he's probably hallucinating bread as he looks at them. But what would be the problem if he did do it? Why shouldn't Jesus turn those stones into bread? I mean, if you wind forward in his ministry, I don't know how long, one of his most famous miracles, one of the best-known stories in the Gospels, is the feeding of the 5,000. When he uses his, 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 his he does a miracle, to, to feed 5,000 hungry people, probably a few more, actually, if you include the women and children. Why shouldn't he do something similar for himself? What would be so wrong about Jesus just rustling up a quick meal in this moment? And the answer on one level is nothing. But on another level, it's everything because the Spirit has just led him into the wilderness. The Spirit has just led him into a place of, of struggle and fasting and not the easy route. And the devil is now trying to short-circuit that and saying, sort it out yourself. Don't put your trust in God. Don't follow the ways of God. Rely on yourself. And actually, that comes out in, very much in Jesus' response. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's a quotation from Deuteronomy 8. And the rest of the passage is all about how God provided for the Israelites materially in the wilderness. And we often assume that Jesus is being super spiritual here. Bread doesn't matter, I just get everything from the word of God, but, but actually it, it's not that. It's about trusting and relying on God for the material and physical things of this world. In, in the, 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 the original story, it's particularly focused on the manna, the bread from heaven, which uh, was what they ate in the wilderness, um, but they had to collect it in the ways that God told them to. So they didn't just live by bread alone, but also according to the things that came to, from the mouth of God, God's instructions for how they were going to do it. And then the passage also references how you know, their, their shoes didn't get worn out and their clothes didn't get worn out in the desert. They didn't have anywhere else to get new shoes, new clothes, but God sorted it all out. And, 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 and what God is saying is, uh, well, through, through Moses in the sermon in, in Deuteronomy, is don't put your trust in yourself to provide for yourself. Put your trust in God. So it's don't rely on me, uh, on, on yourself, but rely on God. And I, I think we, we so easily want to rely on ourselves. We, we so easily want to be uh, sorting our own lives out. I mean, how, how easily do we do that same thing? When, when it comes to your, your job or your career, are you, are you relying on, on your prayer life? Are you relying on being in the right place with God, or are you just relying on working really hard? And When it comes to all the struggles that we're all facing around cost of living at the moment and, and finances and providing for ourselves materially, do we just worry and, uh, and kind of focus on, oh, how am I going to do this? And then think, right, okay, I've got a 10-point plan or whatever it might be. Or, or do we bring it to the Lord in prayer? Are we seeking to rely on him? But, but the other temptations are, are similar. So the, the, the second one um, is, is all about taking control. So uh, it, it, it takes a promise of God. So again, there's, there's a part of it which is fine. You know, Why shouldn't Jesus say, yeah, God's promised this, I'll take, I'll take control of it? Well, because the, the, the promise originally in the Psalms is all about trusting God. All about looking to him to look after us and protect us. And he's taken a promise about how we can trust God and subverted it as he tempts Jesus into being a a temptation to wrestle back control and, and be in control of my relationship with God. And Jesus responds by saying, no, you shall not put the Lord to the test. And again, it references an incident in in the wilderness wanderings of the people of Israel where they wanted something perfectly reasonable. They wanted water, as it turns out. But they grumble and they they get cross with God and they put God to the test because they're not willing to allow him to make the running in their relationship with him. And again, how easily do we do that? How how often do we think, right, right? I want to hold on to the promises of God. I'm I'm not willing to go through the wildernesses. I'm not willing to wait for uh, weeks or days or hours even, let alone years or decades, to receive the things that I want from from God. I'm not willing to to, to go through the sort of wilderness experience. I want the things that God has promised, and I want them now. I I, I want it all to, to be easy. I want to be in control of my ministry. I want to be in control of my career. Let let me put it this way. How often when we do things do we make our own plans and then our prayer is, hey God, I've got a really good idea. Could you just bless it? I'm sure you'll agree it's an excellent idea, God. Can you make it happen? Whereas actually what we're meant to pray is, God, what do you want me to do? And I'll just follow along. So again, it, it, it's about putting yourself at the center, not following the ways of God, and the ways of God are hard. The ways of God are really frustrating sometimes. I mean, in my own life, for instance, I, I, I am now blessed with a, an amazing wife and a, a beautiful little girl, um, but I, I didn't get married until I was 37, and I was the bloke who wanted to meet my wife in Freshers' Week and get married not long after. Um, and I spent... Nearly 20 years being a little bit frustrated with the Lord that that wasn't what was happening. And, and I think so often we, we just want God to do things our way, but we have to surrender and, and let it be his way. And then, then the final temptation it is in some ways again something which is okay, because Jesus is the one who by rights is the king of the world. You know, go forward to Philippians, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. But but this is about short-circuiting it. The the way to being the ruler of of the world, as as Jesus is called to be, is through the cross, is through weakness, is through suffering, is through struggle. And, And the devil says, oh, you can have it easy. You can get to the end goal without going through God's ways. You can get to the end goal easily. All you need to do is just bow down and worship me. And of course, this is quite unsubtle in many ways. And so I think sometimes we think, well, we don't face struggles like this, you know. I've very rarely been tempted to worship Satan. I'm guessing that's true for most of us here. But we are so often tempted to take shortcuts to success, to, to sort of say, well, the end kind of justifies the means. You know, God's called me to achieve this. Does it matter if I kind of play a bit fast and loose with the rules? I often think of this within, within the context and world of work, particularly if you're someone who feels called to what you're doing. And you think, God's called me to be a lawyer or a banker or a teacher or whatever it might be, and, and I know that he's given me a vision for it. Maybe, maybe if I just don't talk much about my faith, that'll mean that I get to where he wants me to be quicker. Or maybe if I turn a blind eye to things being done a, a little bit wrongly or maybe if I just tell a a little white lie or maybe if I'm sometimes a little bit aggressive about how I go about doing my work all the little things God God won't mind because that's how I'm going to get to where he's called me to be more effectively but that's not the way of God the way of God is to well it's the way of the wilderness it's the way of the cross and and so in, in all these different temptations the devil is trying to make Jesus turn away From the ways of God. And he's trying to do it often in very subtle ways. And in all the temptations that he throws at us, he will try and make us move away from the things of God. And in each of them, instead of God, he's encouraging us to put ourselves. And I think of that um, poem, um, which was sort of made famous by the film Invictus. which sort of captures something of the the spirit of our age. I am the master of my fate, it finishes. I am the captain of my soul. It sounds so good, doesn't it? But if you're a Christian, you are not the master of your fate. You are not the captain of your soul. God is. And that leads me on to to my last point. It's all about Jesus it's not all about me, it's all about God. Because the solution to these temptations, well, on one level, the solution to these temptations is put your faith in Jesus and look to him for when you mess it up. We've already looked at that. There's, there's a grace in this passage because we're called just to go, oh, thank God, Jesus has done it. And it's okay that I've messed up because in Jesus I find forgiveness. But also, we find him modeling the way through We find him modeling the solution, the way that we can push back against the devil's ways. And it's all about rooting ourselves in God. I don't know if you noticed, but two of the verses that he quotes, uh, sort of, don't just say a negative, don't do this. But they then push towards God. Man shall not live by bread alone. It's not just about uh, kind of sustaining ourselves, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And not just don't worship Satan, but worship the Lord. Worship God. He's the only one that we're supposed to serve. And and I think that the the antidote to the ways of Satan is to immerse ourselves in the ways of God. Immersing ourselves in the ways of God is, is what Jesus is modeling here, even at cost to ourselves. And of course, that's supremely modeled here in the ways in which he uses scripture. I I think that there's like a law for preachers. You are not allowed to talk about Matthew chapter 4 without pointing out that every time Jesus confronts Satan, he does it by quoting the Bible. I've always loved that, actually. I've always loved that that Jesus uses something that you and I can use. I think that's a a core part of actually what's going on, the, the first point that I made but that each time he confronts Satan by saying it is written and then quoting scripture. And you and I can do the same thing. We have the same weapon at our disposal. In fact, our weapon is better than the one that he had because he only had the first half, the Old Testament, and we've got the New Testament as well. So um, use the Bible. Use it to, to, to confront the lies and to expose the lies that the devil would throw at you. But I think there's more to it than just Jesus throwing out a few verses that he's memorized. Because what he's actually also modeling is digging deep and immersing himself in what the Bible teaches. I don't know if you are aware of this. Probably it depends whether you've heard a sermon that's pointed this out before because most of us don't read the footnotes. But all three of the verses he quotes are from Deuteronomy. And I feel I need to do a side plug here for the book of Deuteronomy. I love the book of Deuteronomy. Last year, I made a film series exploring the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, and I lived in it for about a year. And it's the most wonderful and amazing book of gospel, book of life, book of God. Which is a surprise to most of us because we think it's really, it's, it's the Old Testament law. That's all really boring and dull and dusty. But it's actually the book that is quoted most by Jesus in the Gospels. And he obviously absolutely loved it. And in, in this example, he, he's dug into uh, three chapters in particular. It's not actually just that each one of these quotations comes from Deuteronomy. They all come from the same three chapters of Deuteronomy. And it, it, it feels as though Jesus has really kind of just immersed himself in those chapters. I don't know whether they were favorite chapters and he always went back to them or he'd been reading them just before he went into the desert or just before Satan kind of confronted him. But, but he, he doesn't just quote random verses. He, he knows the background and the context to them. I realize I don't have time to sort of tease that out a little bit more, but, but each time he quotes the verse, you, you, you discover if you then go back to the original uh, passage that it comes from, that the, what he's saying sums up not just that line, but, but the whole passage around it. So, so for instance, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. As I was saying before, that's all about relying on God for sustenance in, in material things. And it, and it just goes straight to the heart of what Satan is tempting him with. And Jesus, Jesus has allowed the Bible to shape his mind to shape his thinking to shape his faith and I would encourage you to let the bible do the same for you and and if you do it's as though it's both a weapon that he uses here he quotes the verses and I think of the sword of the spirit which is the word of God as Paul talks about it but I think it's also like a fortress that guards our minds as well and means that the sort of little kind of darts of the enemy don't get through that first line of defense. So it's about immersing ourselves in God and the things of God. I was also going to point to the the final one and talk about worship, and I don't have time to do that, so I'm just going to say that there's an element of, of being called to worship here as well. But this is a, a beautiful passage which shows us Jesus going ahead of us and winning the victory for us, but then also showing us how we can then live out what it means to be his followers more effectively. So there's both a, a kind of gift and a tool. Should we pray about those now? Would you like to, to stand up? I don't know how you normally do things, but, but let's, let's stand up and... And I just want to start us off in in our prayer and our response and then I'll turn over to, to Will and the band.